0: Luke chapter 9 raises and answers the most important question that anyone could ever ask. Who is Jesus? In Luke's gospel, that question first appears on the lips of King Herod. Uh, Going back to last week's reading in verse 9, Herod responds uh, to those who were saying that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. He said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? In other words, Who is this Jesus? And we might ask how Luke knows that Herod said this. Presumably it was a conversation that took place in the palace. Well, uh, it's not hard to imagine information being leaked from a royal palace. In fact, we don't have to imagine. I googled the words uh, royal palace leak, and here were some of the headlines that came up. Banned BBC royal documentary leaked on YouTube. Another one, real, revealed in court, palace staff assisted in leaking high-grade information about Meghan Markle's letter. Another one, royal officials deliberately leaked information against Prince Harry. And finally, uh, palace trying to identify a person who's been leaking stories on Meghan and Kate's feud. So we don't need to question how Luke uh, knows that Herod had this conversation. We know that information uh, can leak from royal palaces. But Herod's question, who is Jesus? is of vital importance. And I think there are generally five answers that people would give to that question today, apart from those who'd say, I don't know. We'll stick with those uh, who have an opinion. So the five answers you might hear are essentially these. Firstly, he didn't exist. Some people will say that. But historically, we know that he did. No serious historian will try and tell you that uh, Jesus didn't uh, exist, that he wasn't a real historical person. A second answer you might hear is that he was um, a great moral teacher, but nothing more. The, the, the third answer you might hear is that he was some kind of clever con man. Uh, fourthly, if you were talking to a Muslim, they would say a great prophet. And fifthly, you might hear someone answer that he is the son of God. So if you ask lots of people, who is Jesus, those are the most common answers that you'll hear. But the first four answers, the first four conclusions are reached without considering the evidence of eyewitness accounts, without hearing what the people closest to Jesus had to say. The majority of people who answer that question, who is Jesus, do so without ever having read the Gospels. Today we're going to see how those closest to Jesus answered that question and what the answer means for us. Uh, Verse 18 tells us that Jesus was praying. Jesus was praying immediately before we get to what is probably the most important moment in Luke's gospel up until this point, the moment when the disciples realize, they understand, they discover who Jesus is. It's no coincidence that Jesus was praying immediately before this point. Jesus asks his disciples two questions. The first one, who do the crowds say I am? And the disciples tell Jesus what the people are saying. They're the same rumors that have reached King Herod's ears. Jesus is no doubt aware of what people are saying about him, but he wants to hear it from the disciples. And back then, there were a number of answers that you would get to the question, who is Jesus? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. It seems that it was widely agreed that Jesus was some kind of a prophet. And so he was compared to what was at the time a modern day prophet, John the Baptist and he was compared to one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, Elijah, and others. So 2,000 years ago, in first century Palestine, when Jesus was physically still walking the earth, that question, who is Jesus, would most likely elicit one of the following responses. John the Baptist, Elijah, or some other prophet from long ago who had come back to life. Ask that same question in 21st century Australia, and you're likely to hear one of the following answers. He didn't exist. He was a great moral teacher, but nothing more. He was a clever con man, or if you were speaking to a Muslim, they would tell you he was a prophet. All of those views, those of 2,000 years ago and those of today, are the popular views, the rumors, the conjecture, the personal opinion, the Facebook material, Because Jesus asked the disciples a second question. Who do you say I am? So we've heard the popular view. We've heard what the crowds were saying. But what did those closest to Jesus say? Those who accompanied Jesus, who witnessed all his miracles and heard all his teaching. Those who were familiar with Jesus' wisdom, his power, his authority, his insight. Not to mention his fulfillment of scripture. What would they say? Well, Peter, and Peter was a bit of an impulsive character, wasn't he? He often just blurted things out. Uh, It got him into trouble sometimes, but on this occasion, it's great that he did so. Uh, He came straight out with it. He said, God's Messiah, or as it appears in Matthew's gospel, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Uh, The word Messiah comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, and the word Christ is uh, uh, the Latin equivalent. In, in uh, Latin, it would be Christus. So the words Messiah and Christ literally mean the same thing. They mean the Lord's anointed. From the days when they uh, used to anoint kings with oil, pour oil on the, the head of the king at, uh, at his consecration. But isn't it amazing? Jesus is the Messiah. That's always been his identity. We, we see that so clearly when we read about the birth of Jesus in Luke's gospel, uh, the first two chapters. But it's more than 30 years or, uh, before anyone recognizes who Jesus is. I mean, we know, you know, when Jesus is born, uh, he's presented in the temple as a baby, isn't he? And, uh, there's the, the old man Simeon and the prophetess Anna. They clearly, uh, see that Jesus is the Messiah. But after that point, it's years, it's decades before anyone recognizes who he is. Why? Why did it take so long for this vital information to resurface? Uh, Well, I think it's a question of preparation and timing. Imagine a young man starts a biology degree, and day one, week one, goes up to his professor and says, I'm called to be the world's uh, top brain surgeon. And the professor would probably reply, well, that's wonderful. Uh, Now can you get on with this week's assignments? Uh, Even if that young man was correct, and he was called to be the world's greatest brain surgeon, there's a whole lot that he's got to go through, a whole lot that he's got to demonstrate before anyone is going to recognize him as such. Jesus didn't go around saying, I am the Messiah although he dropped a pretty big hint at Nazareth. Uh, He waits until the disciples reach that conclusion based on the evidence, based on what they're seeing and hearing. It's Peter who verbalizes it, but I think we can see Peter as speaking for the whole group. This was a monumental moment. Peter is the first person to look at Jesus and say, you are the Messiah. And that realization is a turning point in the lives of the disciples. And it's the same for us when we realize that Jesus is not only Israel's Messiah, the Son of God, but the Savior of the world. It's a monumental moment and a turning point in our lives. And for the disciples, there's this realization. The penny drops, but then shortly after there comes quite a shock. And that can be the same for us as well. We're going to get to that. But what did the Jews think of? when they heard the word Messiah, or Mashiach? Well, they had four big expectations, almost like four phases. Uh, phase one, they expected a period of turmoil and political upheaval before the coming of the Messiah. And that had definitely happened because the Roman Empire had seized control of the region and, in fact, the whole of the known world. And, uh, and that includes the land that Israel saw as home. Phase two, during that uh, period of turmoil, there would be an Elijah-like forerunner to the Messiah, if not Elijah himself, and John the Baptist had already fulfilled that role. Phase three, the Messiah, God's anointed king in the line of David, would come to establish his rule and reign from Jerusalem. And then stage four, the Jews that had been dispersed all over the known world would return to Jerusalem, and that would be the beginning of a new messianic age, an age of perpetual peace. The disciples thought they were fast approaching phase three, when Jesus would establish his rule and reign from Jerusalem. They were excited. They thought that life was going to be plain sailing from here on in. And then Jesus dropped this bombshell. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Jesus didn't come to conquer the Roman legions, but to suffer and die for his people. Jesus effectively said to the disciples, Look, I haven't come to wear the crown, but to bear the cross. Jesus made it very clear what the role of the Messiah is, though it later becomes evident that the the disciples didn't really take this in. Uh, But if the role of the Messiah is to suffer and die, what does that mean for his followers? Jesus spells it out. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self, or some translations say their soul? Jesus talks about us taking up our cross daily, which implies that the cross is a symbol of self-denial, which it is, but it's far more than that. The cross is literally a method of execution. We must remember who it is that Jesus is talking to, the disciples, most of whom were martyred, killed, for following Jesus. And today, many parts of the world, Christians are, are being martyred. Not so long ago, and maybe even currently in the Middle East, Christians literally, literally being crucified. So we shouldn't water down what it means to carry one's cross. For most of us here today, it's highly unlikely that we'll ever face that level of persecution or anything near it. However, if we look back, we we can see that history has taken some very unexpected twists and turns, and the social and the political landscape can change rapidly. So actually, we can't rule out that level of persecution in our lifetimes, but for us here in Australia, it's very, very unlikely. But the undeniable meaning of Jesus' words is this. Being a a disciple means being prepared to give everything, even one's life, should it come to it. So this was quite a shock for the disciples. Uh, They thought they were going to rule alongside Jesus, and now he's telling them that he's going to be killed, and they must lose their lives in order to save them. That's pretty heavy. That's a lot to take in, and we know that they didn't really take it in, because if we turn the page, they're actually arguing about who is going to be the greatest. What we have here is a discrepancy between expectation and reality. A discrepancy between expectation and reality. Uh, The expectation is that they'll be ruling the world with Jesus from Jerusalem. They expected the immediate fulfillment of all God's promises. But for most of them, the reality would be that they would have a hard life and a brutal death. And we've all experienced situations, nothing like that, but we've experienced situations where the reality is different from our expectations. Before I joined the Royal Marines, my expectation, my uh, my mental picture was a fast roping out of helicopters, firing weapons, blowing things up, zipping across the water in speedboats, skiing, travelling the world, having adventures, and generally swanning around in my green beret, what we used to refer to as all the Gucci stuff. Then I started basic training, and for the first two weeks we did nothing but ironing, cleaning, and getting run ragged. And the training lasted 30 weeks. For much of the time, we were cold, wet, tired. We were smelly. We were stinking. Uh, we were pretty stressed out because of uh, uh, you know we had to pass some test or other virtually every week. And often for Christians, the reality is very different from the expectation. When we first turn to Christ, we might think that life is going to be easy from here on in. In fact, some churches teach that. Give your life to Jesus and you'll get everything you want right now. It's a lie. It's a false gospel. It's often called the prosperity gospel. And taken to the extreme, the prosperity gospel teaches, you know, the more money you give to the church, the more God will bless you financially and materially. It is a lie. This expectation of some Christians is perfect health, material blessings, and financial rewards. Or they expect to be made perfect In the here and now, Uh, those who have genuinely given their lives to Christ are being made perfect, but it's a long and often painful process that will last our whole lives and it will not be completed this side of the grave. We cannot expect God's kingdom to be fully present now. God's kingdom is here. God's kingdom has come, but God's kingdom isn't fully here. If it was, the world would be perfect. It's not. Yet, it will be one day when Jesus returns. In reality, the Christian life can be extremely hard. For many Christians, particularly in other parts of the world, life is harder because they follow Jesus. And as Christians, we can find ourselves yearning for Christ's return when he will establish his rule and reign um, fully forever. Now, you might be thinking, look, you're not doing a very good job of selling the Christian life to us. Uh, Are you trying to put us off or what? But just listen to verses 24 and 25 again. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self or their soul? So the path that looks hardest and most difficult leads to life. And the path that looks easy, the path of least resistance, the path that our selfish nature would have us take, does in fact lead to death. When I first joined the Royal Marines, the reality didn't meet my expectation, but that doesn't mean that I was let down. I did get to do the Gucci stuff, but it was a hard road to get to that point. And of course, it was never easy. It's a physically, mentally, and sometimes emotionally demanding job. But looking back, even though I didn't realize it at the time, the journey was incredibly fulfilling. I wouldn't change it. In fact, if I could change anything, the only thing I'd change is I'd go back and I'd do it all again as a Christian. And the Christian life is a bit like that. If we let go of our old lives, deny ourselves and follow Jesus, it can be hard. It can sometimes be harder. But it's also incredibly fulfilling. It's a wonderful thing to know that your life has ultimate meaning and purpose, God-given meaning and purpose, to know where you come from, why you're here, what happens when you die, to know that your identity is rooted in Christ, to know that God is with us and he has a purpose and a plan for our lives. You know, a lot of people, especially in the Western world, are busy trying to create heaven on earth, but without God. Their focus is on pleasure, physical comfort, and material things. But as Jesus said, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and let lose or forfeit their very soul? Today's passage is quite confronting. It's very confronting. And it presents us with two clear decisions. Firstly, we've got to decide... Who Jesus is? Who is Jesus based on the evidence? When we read the eyewitness accounts of the apostles, not to mention 2,000 years of church history and what Jesus has personally done in our own lives. Who do we say Jesus is? Hopefully, like Peter, we say that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then we've got to decide between two approaches to life. Either we deny self, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Or we live for self, ignore the cross, and follow our own agenda. If we follow Jesus, we gain life. If we reject Jesus, we lose it. It's as simple as that. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that your kingdom has come. But we know that it hasn't yet fully come. We know that the, 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 there will be a day when the world is made perfect, when Jesus returns. But we know right now, the world and life is not perfect. But we put our hope and our trust in you. And we pray that uh, we will have the courage and the strength given by your Holy Spirit to take up our cross and follow you, no matter what that means. And to, f- and to experience the fullness of life that you offer, that doesn't re- re- rely on any material comfort, that relies only on the hope that we have in you and the purpose that you have for us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we will be serious followers of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.